I don't have to tell you this. You know that the world can be a dark place. But have you ever thought about whose job it is to combat that darkness? The people who take some of the riskiest jobs, like hunting child abductors, recovering human remains, or tracking international fugitives. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and in my show Dark Arenas, you'll hear firsthand accounts from people who work in professions that deal with the deviant and defy the dangerous. Each episode of Dark Arenas is going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to investigate the most heinous crimes and most violent criminals in society. You're going to learn about the people who choose these jobs and who stay working in them despite the tolls they take. Enter the darkness of espionage, fugitive hunting, crime scene recreation, and more on Dark Arenas. Listen to Dark Arenas now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight in the bed like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws? Well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatised by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You do a, you do a questionnaire. Uh, do you mind, please? Thank you. Um, we do a, uh, it's a questionnaire. On an overcast day in the fall of 2016, I met Detective Jim Curtis in a bustling diner in Norwich, Connecticut, to talk about Dr. Eugene Maloff's life and death. He would have been characterized as a very, very strong family man, very proud of, of what he had accomplished, but also I think he had a, a very bright look on, on the future. I think he was excited about things to come with his research and so on and so forth. How does a guy like that end up dead in the driveway of his parents' home. Years earlier, Curtis had the same question. But Dr. Malov had become a very different person by the time he died. He was no longer that trusting man from 1989 who believed his scientific colleagues would reveal the truth of cold fusion. And you read about his, you know, he took on MIT and, and then like a... So when you're reading it, that's forming a picture of, of a guy who's what? Confident, stubborn, uh, not easily intimidated. He had a lot of confidence to take care of his own, but also very familiar with the fact that if he was going to come after you, he was going to come after you very vigorously. Even if you didn't think it was some big conspiracy that resulted in his death, the fact that as a man, he was somebody who obviously wasn't afraid to ruffle feathers. Yep. So that, that speaks yep. to a certain character. Sure. So does that come into play where you're thinking like, well, it actually does. There's the possibility that he could have initiated a, a confrontation. He could have been the one, you know, you know, but he would have done it in like that old school fashion. You know, listen, you son of a bitch, you know. I mean, someone who's confrontational 
is, is you know, you don't become confrontational overnight. It, it builds up. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. This is episode two, Fire from Ice. In 1990, 14 years before Dr. Malov would be found dead in his driveway, cold fusion had been effectively killed. But after months of research to figure out for himself whether cold fusion was real, Dr. Malov was seeing some light. With the evidence from researchers outside of MIT overwhelmingly positive that there was something to the phenomenon, Malov was able to convince his editor to reinstate his book deal. Oh, I would have been totally engrossed in cold fusion even without the book contract. I and mean, how could anyone with a serious science background not be? The evidence was so fascinating. And so was the public rejection. That public rejection had become personal too. Suspecting that Dr. Ronald Parker of the Plasma Fusion Center had lied to him about the Boston Herald interview, Dr. Malov wondered exactly what was going on in Dr. Parker's lab during the spring of 1989. If he could find the answers, they were probably in that massive pile of papers that had been accumulating on his desk since the MIT experiments began. I was routinely asking the MIT hot fusioneers for all their data, so they gave me a lot of documents, heaps of them but I couldn't necessarily examine them with a fine-tooth comb the moment I got them. But now, well, now I was poring over every one of those papers. One summer day, Dr. Maloff pulled the stack toward him and started rifling through the papers. As he poured over them, he found a few clues. The first was an email from Dr. Parker. And it wasn't about data sets or scientific charts. It was about the swag that he was giving away. T-shirts with the slogan, stamp out scientific schlock, which he added he'd bought at a quantity discount. But this wasn't all. Somewhere in that mess of papers in the office, Malov found a flyer, a flyer for a party at the Plasma Fusion Center. It looked like the kind of flyer some students would have made for an upcoming kegger. In the middle was a New Yorker cartoon about cold fusion that had recently published. It showed two people floating in heaven, discussing how they died. The caption read, don't you remember? We were at Herb and Sally's and Herb said he knew how to achieve fusion at room temperature using only gin and vermouth. The event was cheekily titled A Week for Cold Fusion. The uh, hilarious poster noted that this party was brought to you by the Center for Contrived Fantasies. Black armbands optional. Dr. Malov wasn't amused, but he did notice another clue. The date. This funeral for cold fusion took place on June 26th, 1989. And that was particularly interesting because 
The data for MIT's second round of cold fusion experiments still hadn't been analyzed when the party was held. So when the hot fusioneers were celebrating the death of cold fusion, they hadn't finalized their results for the cold fusion tests. Those wouldn't come for another month. But it seemed like the hot fusioneers had already made up their minds about cold fusion. It was an expression of bias, which is considered unethical while conducting research. He feared the Plasma Fusion Center's conclusions in their final report were misleading or worse, false. So he turned back to the data on his desk and began looking even closer. That's when he came across two draft reports from the Plasma Fusion Center's research. One was dated July 10th, 1989, and another more complete version was dated three days earlier. When he put the two side by side to compare the data, his eyes widened. Immediately, I could tell there was a serious discrepancy between the original raw data and the final published data. Astonishing. He zeroed in on two graphs that tracked temperature changes in the experiment. In the earlier draft, he saw a clear spike in temperature in the beaker of water. That would confirm Fleischmann and Ponza's finding, at least when it came to the energy that was being put off. The problem was in the final draft, the one that would ultimately be published. That spike was not there. It was not reported. It was gone, as though it had never happened at all. Malov sat there frozen. Were his worst fears coming true? Were the results in the MIT report false? This wasn't trivial either. In the spring of 1989, it was of the utmost importance to figure out whether Pons and Fleischmann were onto something. And MIT's results were widely cited, especially by the Department of Energy, as proof that Pons and Fleischmann's claims were false. Dr. Malov wanted answers. It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. About a week later, he marched across the MIT campus to the Stratton Student Center to meet Dr. Stan Luckhart, a hot fusioneer who worked under Dr. Parker. Over lunch, Dr. Maloff confronted Dr. Luckhart. I handed Luckhart the report and pointed out the data that seemed to be arbitrarily shifted down to make the excess heat disappear. When I asked why this happened, he couldn't explain how the bias was taken out. This didn't satisfy Dr. Maloff. He wanted more charts, more data. He tried getting it from Dr. Luckhart, but the information never showed up. Eventually, Luckhart agreed to meet with Dr. Malov again, but at the last minute, Luckhart canceled. 
he told me he forgot all the data at his other office. It was an excuse equivalent to, I left my wallet in my other pants. If the plasma fusion scientists weren't going to answer him, he'd have to get help elsewhere. Malov wanted to be absolutely sure that his suspicions about the false data were correct. So he handed the data over to a scientist outside of MIT to investigate on his own. The other scientists concluded that the data was in fact flawed and masked a constant state of excess heat. Removing this data entirely would be something you just don't do. Dr. Malov's suspicions were true. The hot fusioneer's bias had swayed the report after all. The MIT data was manipulated and fraudulently presented. To be clear, it doesn't look like there was some kind of sophisticated conspiracy to suppress positive results. It's more likely that the extreme skepticism of the MIT Plasma Fusion Center is what created space for this to happen. A lower-level employee couldn't possibly present anything to their superiors that looked positive. So the data was fudged. Well, there's a, another F-word that comes to mind, though. A word that Dr. Parker loves to use in interviews. Fraud. Why would anyone try to discredit the findings out of Utah and stand in the way of progress? Maloff had a theory, and it boiled down to one thing. Money. The skeptics were influential and had a hold of the Department of Energy's purse strings. They wanted to make sure cold fusion didn't dip into their funding from the federal government. It may sound far-fetched that academics interested in scientific progress would sabotage cold fusion because of money. But research funding is extraordinarily limited and hot fusion research is really expensive. Hot fusioneers relied on the millions of dollars they'd received from the U.S. Department of Energy, but they hadn't produced anything practical after decades of research. Cold fusion was competition that none of them saw coming. It looked like a cheaper and more immediate alternative to hot fusion, if it were real. So when the U.S. government began to consider spending $25 million on cold fusion work, Dr. Malla figured the old guard feared that their jobs were at stake. So the hot fusioneers did what they could to stop it by showing up at the congressional hearing to shed doubt on cold fusion research and accuse Pons and Fleischmann of fraud in the paper. Not only did it work immediately, the effects would be felt for years to come. Most directly, it would be used to shut down the development of new cold fusion technology. The manipulated MIT data was used time and again by the U.S. Patent Office to kill cold fusion patent applications, including the one filed by Pons and Fleischmann. To Maloff, this was tantamount to the suppression of science and it was not letting up. In spring 1991, Dr. Malov wrote an article about cold fusion for MIT's tech magazine. The article had already been approved for publication, but then a professor got his hands on an advanced copy and he trashed it. So I called him up and asked him why. 
He said, I have 50 years of experience in nuclear physics, and I know what is possible and what is impossible. He was uh, sick of seeing evidence of cold fusion because, as he said, it's all junk. Dr. Malov hadn't yet lost faith in his alma mater as an academic institution. After all, the Plasma Fusion Center was only a small part of MIT. Maybe he could convince others at MIT to give cold fusion a fair shake. So he sat at his desk and pounded out a letter to MIT's recently hired president. At the time, I was hopeful he would do something after reading the letter. I suggested that MIT form a study group and look at everything the world had learned about cold fusion since 1989. But he heard nothing from the administration. So no one at MIT would listen. It was a good thing Gene Malov was able to take his message to the rest of the world. Controversy is heating up again. You remember cold fusion, don't you? In late May 1991, Dr. Malov sat down with PBS in Boston. Wearing a dark tailored suit, his bushy goatee trimmed, he initially looked calm as he publicly challenged the cold fusion skeptics. I would say that Pons and Fleischmann will go down in the history of science as heroes, albeit imperfect ones. Malov said reports about the death of cold fusion were exaggerations. There were more than a hundred laboratories around the world that had found positive results, but the public didn't know this because the scientific community cast cold fusion away. This was the first time his battle with MIT's hot fusioneers went public, and his ideas didn't go undisputed. MIT physicist Richard Petrasso also went on the news segment, saying there's no conspiracy to keep positive cold fusion results under wraps. He peer-reviewed Pons and Fleischmann's paper and thought it was simply poorly executed. I had the obligation to reject it for those reasons, just like I reject other papers. As he spoke, he became more animated, moving his head around, his dark eyes staring intensely at the interviewer. And I'm not going to give cold fusion or any other scientific theory some preference, because then you're asking me to abandon my uh, scientific values. One experiment could be wrong. Dr. Malov responded, he was clearly agitated leaning into the camera and talking with his hands. In the beginning, Pons and Fleischmann could have been wrong. But that all these other people are wrong, I don't believe it for a minute. The segment aired on the 10 o'clock news hour. It was great press for Dr. Malov's book. It hit the shelves that month, aptly titled Fire for Mice, Searching for the Truth Behind the Cold Fusion Fuhrer. Fire from Ice recounted the behind-the-scenes battles that unfolded around cold fusion, the furor over the Pons and Fleischmann report, the media firestorm that erupted after, the jockeying by researchers to claim some authority, however tenuous. This all gave Malov a unique bird's-eye view. Being something of a cold fusion historian, I can say with conviction that if Pons and Fleischmann were allowed to hand out their paper at that first press conference in 1989, it would have drastically reduced the opposition to cold fusion. The book was praised by Nobel laureate Julian Schwinger, right there on the book jacket. 
He said Eugene Malov has produced a sorely needed, accessible overview of the cold fusion muddle. Malov's publisher, Wiley & Sons, was so taken with Fire From Ice that they nominated it for a Pulitzer Prize. The book was a win for Dr. Malov, but he was still processing what he had lost. You know, I put science on a pedestal. In his PBS interview, Malov was candid about the disappointment he felt in his peers of the science community. I've been with science all my life, a passionate devotee of science with capital letters. But what I didn't realize, and it took the cold fusion uh, controversy to make me painfully and deeply aware of this, was that scientists could be as human and fallible in the, in the grossest of ways as any other human beings, including politicians. But that only skimmed the surface of how deeply this drama had cut through him. It gave him a lot to think about during those long drives to and from his home in New Hampshire. The fate of humanity hung in the balance, and the MIT hot fusioneers failed us. They decided to kill an important scientific claim by manipulating the media and publishing flawed data. It was all so repulsive. I couldn't stand to be a part of it. I wanted to let them wallow in their self-created problems. Mark my words, one day the whole world will understand what MIT did. Malov had two choices. One, get in line behind MIT. Or the other, follow his own path. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. The sun beat down on Dr. Malov on June 7, 1991, as he made the half-mile journey across campus from his office to the Plasma Fusion Center. Dr. Malov clutched the documents he'd been poring over. He was en route to an hour-long Friday morning seminar hosted by the Hot Fusioneers in the very auditorium where they'd held the Wake for Cold Fusion a year earlier. This was another celebration of sorts. The event was called an expose of cold fusion. Unbeknownst to me at the time, it would become a climactic event in my life and in the history of cold fusion. Dr. Malov had gone to crash the party. When he walked in, a scientist from the UK was giving a talk about his own recently published book on cold fusion. The scientist was sharply more critical alleging that Pons and Fleischmann had mishandled and even fudged some of their data. 
Malov thought this was rich. So when it was time to take questions from the audience, he raised his hand. The master of ceremonies was hesitant, but allowed me to speak briefly, saying, just one minute, Gene. Malov hurried to the front and slapped a transparency on the overhead projector. On the screen over his head appeared the evidence that he said showed MIT, in fact, had fudged their own data about cold fusion. I sarcastically gave the scientist a tip for his next book to include this scandalous discovery. I might as well have been talking to a brick wall. In his mind, the malfeasance of MIT was no big deal. After all, he had just proven cold fusion was dead. Dr. Parker loudly chimed in to protest, saying, We don't drop our data points. We don't become passionate. Science is supposed to be objective, even if it goes against the grain. Parker continued telling the crowd that he'd never seen this data before today. Well, in fairness, he probably hadn't, but then he made a confounding statement that you could move the data on the charts anywhere you wanted to. Parker said that, regardless, the research was worthless. Dr. Malov's blood began to boil. Not only were the scientists glib about the MIT data, but Dr. Parker had the audacity to suggest he was above reproach, claiming the scientific high ground when Dr. Malov knew the facts proved otherwise. Malov pointed out that other labs all over the world had gotten significant results in their cold fusion experiments and that MIT needed to take a look at that too. Passion and publicity shouldn't be used to solve this problem. So I said to all the doubters in the room, pointedly, I think experiments should, but they are not being done here. How did the scientists respond? As one of them actually put it, it's one o'clock and we've got to go to a luncheon. Saved by the bell. Outside, the clouds had turned gray as Dr. Malov stormed back to the MIT communications building. By the time he sat down at his desk, he had made up his mind on what he should do next. He pulled up an angry letter on his computer that he'd been writing for weeks, and now it was time to print it out and hand it to his boss. Just two days before my 42nd birthday, on June 7th, 1991, I resigned from the MIT news office in protest of my colleague's unbelievable campaign against cold fusion. In the letter, Dr. Malov was frank. Circumstances surrounding the cold fusion controversy had left him no choice but to leave his post. I feel increasingly uncomfortable being the ex officio representative of the tragic and indefensible abrogation of academic standards that's occurred at MIT in this matter. Over 17 pages, he detailed the bad behavior from MIT's hot fusioneers, the wake for cold fusion that they'd had, the way they blocked his paper, the deplorable comments that his colleagues made in public and in private, which he quoted. They dismissed Cold Fusion and Pons and Fleischmann as garbage, crooks who should be put in jail, absolute fraud, wacky, seance of true believers, a bunch of junk, foolishness, and mendacity. 
This arrogance is so offensive that it can hardly be suffered, and it need not be. That is one of the reasons why I'm leaving the news office. I'm profoundly embarrassed that we have such closed-mindedness here on scientific issues. I can't represent such attitudes. Furthermore, I intend to attack them, not only after I leave this office, but in my remaining time here. Despite his anger, his final words were bittersweet. Working at the MIT News Office as Chief Science Writer has been a great privilege and an enlarging experience for me. The vistas that have opened up are immense, and the talented people and friends I've come to know are many. I wish that the MIT community had been able to react with less acrimony and divisiveness in the matter of cold fusion. I will not reconsider my decision to leave the news office unless that situation changes radically. Something I do not foresee happening soon. And that was that. Dr. Malov got in his car. As he drove off campus after resigning, it was clear just how far he'd come since first arriving at MIT. He'd given his heart and soul to MIT from the moment he walked through the doors for the very first time as a student 40 years earlier. He came of age there. He marveled at discoveries there. He even joined the faculty the moment that he could. This place was a part of him, so much so that he'd make that 60-mile commute to and from his home in Bow, New Hampshire every day just to work at MIT and walk those hallowed halls. But as the city of Cambridge faded in his rearview mirror, Malov was heading into a new world of his own. He could see the future, how cold fusion would revolutionize the world with safe, near infinite energy. And if he had to go the rest of the way alone, no job at MIT, no stability, no respect, then so be it. He would never take his MIT ring from his finger. But now he was ready to fight them and anyone who stood in the way of science. Clutching his wheel, he was beginning a journey that would lead to places he never imagined with people he never thought he'd know. But one of them would leave him dead. There's been a five or six, quote unquote, suspicious deaths in the new energy field prior to Gene's death. My life has been uh, threatened uh, many times. Where are the numbers? That's what I want to see. She was just very concerned about what him leaving a full-time job meant for the family. That's coming up on Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is episode two of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, 
and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhaus. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Canner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. And Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends about us. The next episode will be out in a week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Wave's Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.